Welcome to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Most Canadians woke up on the morning of May 28, 2021, to the news that 215 unmarked graves were found at a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. This news was a wake-up call for all Canadians to a reality that Indigenous people live with every day. I'm not ignorant to this country's history with regards to Indigenous people, nor of our Catholic Church's history with the first people of this land. But as conversations about healing and reconciliation took center stage, I wanted to know more. I wanted to speak with Indigenous people. I wanted to hear their stories, stories of the people and the land, stories about traditions and legends, stories about languages and cultures that I know very little about. And so, this is what we're doing today and over the course of the year. Welcome to this special Salt and Light Hour series, Indigenous Voices. Canadian Catholic bishops began this journey some seven years ago when the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was released. The commission dealt mainly with the residential schools and its legacy, a legacy that is being lived by so many survivors and their descendants. Since then, much good work has been done and many good relationships have been formed, but there is still much to be done. And so this is where my journey begins, as a Catholic, as a Canadian, to understand where we've been, where we're at, and where we should be going as faithful Catholics. It is my hope that as we meet my guests and listen to their stories, our hearts will be opened in a way that will lead to true healing and true reconciliation, for we are all in need of both. One of the first conversations I had was with Harvey McHugh. Harvey is Anishinaabe from Georgina Island First Nation, and has an accomplished career in health education, self-governance, public relations, and economic development. He is the former director of education services for the Cree School Board in Northern Quebec and former First Nations Director General of Indian Education at Indian and Northern Affairs Canada. We spoke about growing up on Georgina Island just off the coast of Barrie on Lake Simcoe, about land rights, about his uncle's experiences as residential school survivors, and finally, his thoughts on reconciliation. My name is Harvey McHugh. My Anishinaabe name is Wabagijig. Uh, which um, in English means gray skies. Um, I was uh, I was born in 1944 and, in Toronto and uh, lived with my with my mother and my grandmother um, uh, for three years in Toronto. Um, my uh, my father uh, died of tuberculosis and in, in uh, when I was eight months old in in 1945. Um, and so, uh, the two women raised me for, uh, until, until my mother, uh, remarried, which she did in 1947. Uh, and it was a challenge, uh, uh for any single, uh, uh, mother in those days in, in the thirties, forties and fifties in, in Canada and in Ontario, because the children's, uh, aid authorities, uh, frowned upon single women, uh, with children. And uh, so the two women were very um, 
very assiduous, they, they managed to stay one step ahead of the uh, Children's Aid Society in Toronto. And, and we, we lived in a, in a variety of, uh, of um, uh, basically uh, two-room apartments um, until mm -hmm. my mother remarried. And she married um, uh, Harold McHugh, my stepfather, who was a member of the uh, Georgina Island First Nation. Okay. And in uh, 1947, uh, we relocated from Toronto to uh, to the island, and uh, and at that time, uh, my stepfather applied for the position of uh, uh, caretaker of one of the uh, one of our reserves islands in Lake Simcoe, Snake Island, which uh, okay. had been uh, uh, land had been uh, surveyed and and leased principally to to Toronto people who were interested in. Um, building um, small summer uh, cottages mm -hmm, there, mm -hmm. and uh, the community felt that they needed a presence on the uh, on Snake Island because Snake Island had been abandoned in the late 1800s mm -hmm. uh, in favor of the larger Georgina Island, which uh, which had more land and more arable land in particular, and so there wasn't anyone from the community on Snake Island, and and. Uh, the community felt it was important to have someone there to remind cottagers that hey, this is <laughs> this isn't your land. This is uh, this is our land. Yeah. So my stepfather applied and got the job of caretaker, and and uh, that's where I was raised. I was raised on Snake Island, which is uh, part of our uh, our reserve, and right. I lived there until I left home in '64 to uh, go to university. So when you were growing up, it it was a reserve, and is, is it still a reserve? It's still a reserve, yep. uh, although um, th there there isn't anyone any longer from the community living there. Uh, my niece uh, and son inherited our our property and 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 home, um, uh, but uh, they only use it as a, as a summer property as well. So, okay, uh, Snake Island is still is still part of the of the reserve, and mm -hmm. uh, it just lacks a, a permanent uh, a permanent occupant from the from the community. It sounds like uh, from the time you were young, growing up, you were already being influenced by issues of land rights. And uh, um, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, Pedro, in the in in the fifties, when I started going to public school, um, mm. uh, you know, um, there wasn't there wasn't much. Uh, uh, information uh, or or, or uh, education about uh, Indian issues at, mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we mainly because all reserves in Canada at, during the 20s, 30s, 40s, and right up through uh, until the early 60s, every community was governed by an Indian agent. Right. And this this individual um, basically was a was a it was it was an autocrat mm -hmm. Indian agents and they were all men uh, white men a lot of them were ex-military mm. um, they uh, they had total control over what happened uh, on any reserve under their uh, under their authority and um, and and uh, and the federal government still had a very very heavy hand. Uh, in uh, what uh, happened and what didn't happen in uh, communities. Uh, right up until the 50s, it was still against the law for Indians to have legal representation, for example. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it, it was then and it still is 
uh, virtually impossible for an Indian to get a loan from a bank, uh, which which meant uh, you know people couldn't start businesses because they couldn't access capital, mm-hmm. uh, unlike unlike other people in small towns and villages in 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 the country, um, and, and and so. Um, we, we were under, we being uh, First Nations people, we were under a, a real blanket. There, 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 as, as, as your listeners and viewers may not know, uh, we were prevented from organizing politically mm-hmm. uh, right up until the 50s. And so there was no voice. There was no national voice. There was no provincial voice. There would be beyond the local chief and council. Uh, there was no voice for 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 our people to say, "Hey, what's going on here? You know, why isn't this happening? Why is that happening?" Uh, and even if we did have a voice, the local Indian agent uh, controlled the uh, the volume on that. Um, you know, any a, any correspondence, for example, between uh, a community and uh, and and the minister of Indian Affairs of the day. Had to be uh, had to be approved uh, by the local wow. Indian agent, and if the Indian agent didn't like the tenor of the letter or or the accusations or the requests, right. you know, the letter didn't just, go through. Yeah. So so communities were really under the thumb of the government uh, through the through the office and authority of Indian agents, and 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 that really uh, limited discourse. It limited the flow of information and uh, and ex- and exchange of information. Mm-hmm. So so when you reference uh, land issues, um, people didn't think about that, right? Uh, because because it, it it just was it was beyond it was beyond our our, our authority. It was beyond our control. And and quite frankly, during the um, during the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, right up until probably uh, the late thirties uh, uh, and early forties, Indian agents were selling land uh, in many cases illegally mm-hmm. um, uh, because because people didn't uh, didn't didn't have access to uh, 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 the normal uh, ordinary authorities like the police, for example. Right. Uh, we were communities were really held hostage by uh, by these guys. And uh, not all of them were crooks. Not all of them uh, were, were were selling Indian land under the table. But but it did happen, and 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 it's been and it's been verified. And, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, of course. So, I mean, you know, so 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 the, so our consciousness was really uh, pretty minimal at that mm-hmm. time, and it was largely because of the suppression uh, we were under, uh, either by. Uh, by the government through uh, through Indian agents or or by the uh, by the church authorities, right? It's a, yeah, and I know it's a complicated thing, and we could probably spend a, a few hours talking about the Indian affairs and and uh, the Indian Act. Um, but I wanted to ask you about about going to school. You mentioned going to public school. You were living in an indigenous community. Was your public school mostly indigenous, or were you were you integrated with other white kids in the community? Because Snake Island um, uh, is small, uh, and, and because we were the only family uh, after 1947 uh, who lived e- there year-round, the cottagers uh, came and went uh, on uh, Victoria Day and Labor Day. Uh, I, I was I was required to go to school on the mainland. Okay. And uh, when I started school in um, uh, 1950, I went to a two-room uh, rural school. 
uh, and I was the only uh, indigenous kid in the school. And um, fortunately, um, my mother uh, always read to, uh, to me and, and to my siblings. I, I have three younger siblings. And, uh, and, and research clearly points out that if children are read to from a very early age, their um, literacy and um, uh, uh, skills in, in increase substantially over those kids who, who who are not read to. Right. So by the time I got to uh, by the time I got to grade one, there was no kindergarten in, in, in mm-hmm. school. You know, kindergarten didn't really exist very very much in the province in in, in the in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, I could read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, I knew my alphabet, and and so. Um, because of my vocabulary and because of my ability to read, uh, I did I, I did well in, in public school. Right. In fact, I, in fact, I have clear memories in grade three of uh, of the teacher uh, using me as a uh, as an assistant to uh, to tutor uh, the two or three uh, kids uh, in grade three who you know who right. were having who were having trouble uh, reading uh, and. Um, and and so I I, I I enjoyed school. You know, um, I, I was the oldest kid at home, and, and my my brothers were were considerably younger than me. So school was great. You know, I had playmates right. there. You know, and I I, I was I was uh, uh, I didn't have any problems doing schoolwork, mm. and 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 I and I was I I, I was particularly um, uh, feisty as well. So it was a very mm. positive experience. I was the only. Uh, indigenous kid in the school, and 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 if anything, I suffered reverse discrimination. Um, right. Okay. E- everyone wanted to be my pal. Um, okay. Uh, and and uh, you know, I was I was uh, I was uh, like a novelty in the school, and, yeah. and so I have I have very happy memories of uh, of elementary and high school for that. Yeah. And and you went on to university and 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 postgraduate school as well. Um, did you have any relatives who had residential or day school experiences? Yes, I did. I had I had two uh, two uncles who went to the residential school in Chaplow, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, and curiously, uh, Georgina Island um, was one of several uh, s- southern Ontario communities uh, who were untouched by residential school. Um, the, the community that my mother came from, Rama, Mm-hmm. near Aurelia. Uh, I, I don't know if there was anyone from that community who went to residential school. Um, and I, 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 I don't know why, but uh, uh, why, why, those, why those people from, from those two communities at least w- weren't affected. But certainly my two uncles uh, went uh, and, and, and no one knows really why they went uh, from, our, from Georgina Island. They were the only two in the whole history of the reserve who went to residential school and they were taken away uh, when they were uh, eight and six. And, um, and because Chaplow is quite a distance from uh, Southern Lake Simcoe, mm-hmm. um, they didn't return home until they were, uh, until they were uh, uh, 16 and 18. And um, you know, that, that, so they were away for, uh, for, for 10 years. Right. And, um, and, and they, they, uh, they were unfortunate individuals. They, they really, uh, they really suffered greatly from their uh, from their experience in Chapel. It's again a complicated issue, and and I know we can't do full justice to it. But can you share with our listeners a little bit about 
the kinds of things that would have that your uncles would have experienced that might have resulted in them having a difficult life afterwards? Well, I think I think like all residential school kids, uh, the the two men suffered unimaginably from the from the lack of love. They were uh, and 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 they they, they weren't the, uh, all the kids who who went to residential schools um, suffered for a for a want of maternal or paternal uh, love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and that, 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 that's a very devastating, uh, effect. Um, now they were, they were, in my opinion, and we were close to, we were close to one of them. One, one Corbett, uh, lived with us off and on for oh, almost 10 years. He, 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 he helped my stepfather, uh, um, uh, as a laborer. And, and, and so he, we, we, physically we, we, we were close to him, but him and his, and his brother were similar to war veterans who had terrible experiences during the war. They, they, they didn't want to share the experiences. They, they weren't very forthcoming at all mm-hmm. about, about the 10 years that they spent at Chaplow. What, what I, what I, the most I got from, uh, from, from uncle Corbett was uh, they they were deprived of food. the The food was 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 either very meager or very bad, and I suspect it was both, um, <laughs> given what what I know about residential schools across the country. And he he said that during the winter, quite often to supplement their 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 low rations, as it were, uh, the boys would set up snares at the back end of the property uh, of the of the school and 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 trap either rabbits or or anything that they could snare as a way to supplement the, uh, the, the, mm. the meager food that they were, that they were provided. And, and, and quite frankly, Pedro, that, that was the most that he ever shared with me anyway, or with the family. He may have shared more with my mother mm-hmm. um, uh, because they were fairly close. Uh, but my mother, if she did have, um, uh, if she did have additional information, she never shared it with me or with, or with us. But but we know that 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 Chaplow was was administered um, very similarly to all the other residential schools. So so the difficulties that that we know of in general about residential schools probably apply to to Chaplow as well. I mean, it was impossible for kids to to run away from, and I don't know if there were any cases of kids mm-hmm. trying to uh, trying to uh, uh, escape from Chaplow because it was you know. It was it was very remote and and um, um, it, it it would have been it would have been tough for 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 kids to to try to uh, to try to get home from there. And uh, and and when you say that they had uh, difficulties afterwards, do you mean they suffered addictions or that they were they married? How are their children? Do you see that intergenerational trauma that has been passed down in in their experience? One of them married, married late. Um, they were both, uh, uh, they both abused alcohol. Um, um, they probably would have abused drugs if, if drugs had been available uh, during the 60s and 70s. Um, the Corbett, who, who, who married late, uh, fathered uh, oh, five children. And their 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 marriage dissolved after about 
eight years. And uh, all of the kids were um, taken up by Children's Aid Society and farmed out to foster homes. And, and, and some of those kids are, not, are, are damaged as well. Uh, so yeah, there was there was definitely evidence of intergenerational trauma. Both men were just they they, they were um, they, they had they had problems communicating. Um, they they were withdrawn. Uh, they as I said they 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 abused alcohol. They weren't they, they, you wouldn't you wouldn't describe them as drunks like they they, they weren't they weren't they weren't um, uh, intoxicated uh, 24/7, mm-hmm. but but when they when they uh, uh, when they had um, uh, disposable income, it, it it was spent on 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 alcohol, and, um, uh, and and Corbett, for example, he he lived with us as I say off and on for at least 10 years. Uh, he he would just go to town on 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 the weekend and return on 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 sometime on monday and in right. pretty bad shape and hung over and you know, right. torn, clothes torn and so on so yeah, yeah they they were they, they they were they were broken people quite mm-hmm. frankly you know, yeah. they, they, they were uh, you couldn't have a conversation with them um at least you know beyond just sort of normal pleasantries um mm-hmm. they, they they were they were unhappy um and uh, yeah they 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 they, they, they weren't um they weren't uh, uh, they weren't whole yeah the the government governments and and churches and church leaders have have offered apologies um, not sure in terms of compensation how how much or or um, certainly not enough has been done what what is needed to to make this right Harvey Quite frankly, Pedro, um, apologies and, and, and reparations are, are some symbolic. Um, and, and in my opinion, and this is my opinion only, and, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a clinician, uh, I'm not a psychologist, um, uh, I'm not a medical person, but in, in, in my opinion, uh, uh, reparations and apologies are, 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 are tokens. Uh, and they, they, they're important. Um, I, 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 but, but, but as far as healing is concerned and, and, and helping people deal with the trauma that they experienced, um, I, I don't think any amount of money uh, can, mm-hmm. can, can resolve their, their, their issues. I, time, t- time is required. Treatment for uh, counseling uh, for, 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 for the children of, of, of survivors and, and unfortunately for, uh, for the children of those children are probably, uh, is, is probably uh, a step in the right direction. And, um, and I, think, I think too, I think um, our own communities uh, need to uh, step up and, and recognize the tremendous damage that, uh, that, that these people have suffered and that their children have suffered. Um, uh, I, I, and I think I think I think uh, communities need to explore what programs can be done uh, within the community to mm-hmm. offer support and assistance to these individuals, as opposed to just treating them 
uh, as, the, as they are treated, uh, just as, as, as sort of normal people. Well, they're not normal people. And, you know, they, they've been damaged psychologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so they, they need to be treated in, in ways which acknowledge that, uh, that damage and which accommodates that damage. And uh, I, I, I hope I hope communities are 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 looking uh, at this as a as a measure of, of providing support. I don't know if that's happening, but but I would certainly encourage it. In yeah. addition to in addition to counseling, I think communities need to develop um, measures to uh, to accommodate the the uh, the difficulties and challenges that these people uh, face. Yeah, that that's sounds like it's an important part of the healing process. Um, what would what what do you think reconciliation, true reconciliation, would look like? I know that healing is part of that. I know truth needs to be part of that. But in 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 a perfect world, if Harvey McHugh saw perfect reconciliation, what would it look like? Well, anyway, it would be it would be Canadians as a whole. Acknowledging the challenges and barriers that um, that, that uh, Indigenous people uh, have experienced and faced um, since uh, since the 1800s, um, I, I believe that if Canadians as a whole were better informed about the difficulties and barriers, le- in in many cases legal and legislative barriers. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not talking about discrimination on the street and, and, and stuff like that. There would be, first of all, a greater understanding of why our communities are in conditions that they're in. And secondly, I think people would be more uh, inclined to see uh, a challenge to overcome uh, in, to, 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 to help uh, our communities as opposed to seeing us and our communities as um, uh, as as, uh, as being responsible for the situation that we're in, right. I think too many Canadians, and and I, and I don't blame them because for, for for what I'm going to say, because they just don't ha- they haven't had uh, the the education or the information to 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 to, to make a to make a proper assessment, but too many Canadians really do believe that we're responsible for the for the for the problems that we experience. Right. Uh, you know, they say, well, you know, like, you know, and quite often I hear, you know, well, you know, why, why don't why don't you uh, why can't you improve yourselves? You know, why can't you get why can't you uh, get work? Uh, yeah. You know, what, so, so things so basic things like that. Well. <laughs> and so, and so we're, we're we're seen as the authors of our own misfortune, and 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 that's a as I say that's an unfortunate uh, uh, lens uh, uh, to use in, in in looking at indigenous people because it's a it's a it's a inaccurate lens. Um, a lot of barriers were were put in our in our way that prevented us from uh, improving our conditions, from improving our education, from accessing capital, from developing businesses, from becoming part of the economy. Those were not those were not pro- problems that we created. Uh, mm-hmm. We are we are in effect 
the results of those problems. We, we suffer because of those problems, but they were not problems that we created. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so we, we are far from the authors of our own misfortune. And I think if Canadians as a whole had better education about uh, those difficulties that we face, uh, we face, and those barriers. I think, I think there would be a a, a greater and, and 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 quite frankly, quicker um, 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 process to to reconcile uh, what what uh, what happened as a result of residential schools. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it'll it, it's not an easy job, and it'll take time. But hopefully, we are already moving in the right direction. Well, I think yes, we are moving in the right direction. Uh, but there's, uh, but 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 I'll be I'll be quite I'll be quite candid. There's there's a long way to go. Mm-hmm. There's a long way to go. Uh, uh, people are. I, I, I for example, just just uh, as soon as as soon as we finish this, I'm delivering a book that uh, a former student of mine wrote about residential school. Um, uh, interestingly, she's 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 not uh, indigenous, but the book has been she self-published it and it's been well received. I'm delivering it to uh, to to friends um, that we've been with, uh, that that we've known since we've been in Ottawa since the late '80s. And these two people, they're well educated, they're university educated. Um, the wife uh, was a, uh, a director general in the civilian side of the RCMP. They know they know nothing about residential schools. Yes. They know, you know, yes. you know, and 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 they are they're you know they're they're, they're both uh, they're both college mm-hmm. graduates, uh, and and that's just one one of many, many examples. So there's a there's a long long way to go, Pedro. Yes, and I hope that I hope that that's a little bit that we can do with this program is just bring a more awareness and education to people. Well, let's um, hope so. Thanks to the work that you do, Harvey, as an educator. Um, Thank you. Thank you for spending a little time with us today, telling us about yourself and about what you do and about your thoughts on all of this. Thank you. You're welcome, Pedro. Good talking to you. Yes, you too. Speaking with Harvey McHugh made it obvious that not all Indigenous people are damaged, but Certainly, there is a majority who did not have the opportunities that Harvey had. He is a practical man, and while he doesn't discount the importance of apologies and compensation, he recognizes the need for practical healing in the form of counseling and programs that are designed by Indigenous people specifically to treat survivors, their children, and their grandchildren. Thanks to his leadership as an educator, many communities are finding those practical solutions. Another Indigenous leader who is an example of what is possible when you do not have obstacles and instead are given opportunities is Cassidy Karen. At just 29 years of age, in 2021, she was elected President of the Métis National Council. President Karen is originally from Saskatchewan, but grew up in British Columbia. We spoke about the Métis Nation, who they are, their history, and some of the issues that have affected them over the last few centuries.
Kansei Kiowal. Hello, my name is Cassidy Karen, and I am the president of the Métis National Council. My family is Métis. Um, I come from two historic communities out in Saskatchewan. Uh, the communities are called Batoche, Saskatchewan and St. Louis, Saskatchewan. Um, so that's where both my grandparents were, were born and raised. And uh, I was actually born and raised in British Columbia, um, but still had a lot of family out in Saskatchewan. And uh, our, our ties to those lands are very strong. And we uh, make many trips out west and uh, to visit, to visit our, our homelands as much as possible. But uh, growing up in British Columbia, I always knew that I was Métis, I was raised Métis, I was connected to my family and my culture and my traditions and uh, very fortunate to, to, to do so because being disconnected and removed from your lands, uh, that is one of, uh, one of the, the challenges that the Métis Nation struggles with. You're, you're being very humble because you are the president of the uh, Métis National Council. Um, you didn't start there. What what made you sort of get involved in in issues that eventually led you to? I mean, I don't even know how that process works. Uh, you, mm -hmm. if it would have been an election or if you were appointed, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, like I said, I, I've been connected to the Métis community my whole life. Uh, my family was very uh, politically involved in the Métis Nation my whole life. Um, and uh, when I was young, I served as a community youth representative with my local community for, for our, our Métis community. Um, and from there, I actually got involved in provincial Métis politics and was elected as the provincial youth chairperson and minister responsible for youth with Métis Nation British Columbia, which is the, uh, the Métis government that represents Métis people in BC. Okay. Um, so that was from 2016 to 2020. I, I took some time off and I, I did my master's degree in uh, community development. And just uh, September 30th, 2021, I was elected as the president of the Métis National Council. And so the Métis National Council um, is... Uh, the, the representative body, the advocacy body for our democratically elected Métis governments in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. So those Métis governments represent Métis people living in those provinces, and they come together and, and mandate me as the president of the Métis National Council to represent their interests and needs at the national and international levels. Okay, so I have about 50 more questions right there, but let's back up a little bit because maybe we have some listeners that are thinking Métis. What, what, what is that? Is that considered like a in First Nations? Like what, what who are the Métis people? What is the Métis nation? <clears throat> so uh, Métis are one of three identified Aboriginal peoples recognized in Canada's Constitution Act. So Métis people are a distinct Indigenous people uh, who emerged in the early 1800s in the historic Northwest. And so we come from originally the mixing of European fur traders and explorers and First Nations people. However, um, that, that mixing took place so long ago and then those, those people came together and now have a shared history, language, culture, and collective consciousness. So the Métis Nation is one of three Indigenous peoples. So there's Métis, there's First Nations, and there's Inuit across Canada. And so we are the Métis Nation. So uh, so 
and and again, I have more questions. <laughs> but so, as a nation, is it can it can can we say that it's equivalent to like the Cayuga Nation or the Nisca Nation or the so, so it's considered equivalent in that at, at a at a at a level of nations? Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. So okay. so the Métis Nation is is. Our, our body, our collective consciousness of people. And, uh, and we do work with the federal government on a nation to nation, government to government relationship. So yes, the Métis Nation is considered um, a nation. Okay. And, and I think you already answered my next question, because you said that the, the mixing of the, 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 the blood, I guess, of the indigenous people and the Europeans happened so long ago. So, because I think that there might be some people that think, oh, Métis just means mixed blood. So my friend, Karen, whose mother is Ojibwe, but father is Norwegian, she's not Métis, but she's mixed. So can you explain that difference a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're absolutely correct. Mixedness does not mean Métis. Um, that that mixedness, that uh, what we call, it's an ethnogenesis of a people dates back to the, the early 1800s, um, where the successive generations of marriages uh, between mixed heritage children um, born of those European men and First Nations women facilitated throughout North America that the fur trade um, and led to that formation of a new distinct people and those new distinct communities. So back then, even that, those mixed people, those mixed communities were no longer identifiably European or First Nations, but rather something entirely new and unique and were recognized as such by their European and First Nations neighbors alike. Um, mm -hmm. So typically, um, we were for, for many, many generations known as half-breeds. Um, and we still, still refer to ourselves as half-breeds. And there are many names for Métis people in different Indigenous languages across Canada as well, just depending on whereabouts on, on the continent, on, in this country we were and who we were trading with, who we were meeting with, who we were building relationships with. So for example, one of the names that uh, that Cree people would call us is Otapamisawak, which meant the people who own themselves or the people who govern themselves. And so we were recognized and we, and of course today are still recognized as a distinct people. Right. Now you, you mentioned that the, the, the council represents Métis, the Métis nations of BC, did you say Alberta? I think you said Saskatchewan and Ontario, but there are Métis people all across the country, correct? Even in the <clears throat> coast. Correct. So, um, so yes. So there are governments that are established in uh, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario who represent Métis people, and those people come from these historic communities. And yes, you're absolutely right. Métis people. Who, who come from our historic homeland, um, which was the, the historic Northwest, um, spanning from parts of Ontario, uh, the Prairie Provinces, a little bit of the, the United States, um, Northwest Territories and into Eastern British Columbia. That's, that's our homeland. And uh, so if you come from there, of course, our, our people move around the country and, and you can be a Métis person from the Métis Nation homeland who lives outside of there. Right. Um, but uh, but that's that's where our communities are. So when the Canadian government was enacting 
policies against or policies that affected the First Nations Indians, they would call them. Um, were those policies also affecting Métis people and were Métis people seen as, I mean, you said half-breeds, but were they considered Indians in that sense? So that was a, that was a, one of the things that the Métis Nation had struggled with for many, many years um, was whether or not the Canadian government defined Métis people as quote unquote Indian. Um, and so there actually was a Supreme Court case uh, and, and I, I'm going to gap on the year right now, but it was the Daniels decision, which then um, it did come to, to say that Métis people are defined as Indian under the Indian Act, uh, or not under the Indian Act. Um, but anyways, they are defined as, as Indian. However, historically, yes, the, the colonial assimilative policies did affect Métis people, um, many of which... It, depending where you were across the homeland, um, were similar to to um, our, our First Nations relatives, but there were also many distinct assimilative policies that applied to Métis people, um, including the script system, which was a, a process to really strip Métis people of their lands as uh, the government was moving west and and putting in the the railway. Mm. They wanted to take over the lands that Métis people were traditionally living on and inhabiting and and making their livelihoods on. And so the the Northwest Script Commission came through the the historic Northwest and uh, and and really gave Métis people the option to take. Uh, $240 or, or 240 acres of land. However, that process actually was very, very unfair, where if you took a piece of script and wanted to go and cash it in for, for that money, there were no banks around the area to go and, and to do that. So um, people were, were following through these, these script commissions and would buy um, the, these pieces of land or, or the script dollars from Métis people for much less than they were actually worth. So our people were actually quite, they were swindled out of off their land and they, they weren't given um, what they were promised as, as the government was coming through. And so our people have been um, also known as uh, the road allowance people. And that was because they, they lived on road allowances. And, and as, as I say, as governments came, the government came through and were, were speculating the land and building the railway and settling new communities, Métis people just kept getting pushed off of where they were. And so, so that was one of those policies. That was one of those practices of assimilating Métis people, really just disenfranchising them of, of who they were and where, where they lived. And yeah. that led to what we call a Métis diaspora. And that's exactly what you were talking about is that Métis people were all over the country. And, uh, and that's because that's, we didn't have anywhere to go. We weren't given the land that we were promised um, in, in, in the negotiations of, of Canada becoming Canada. Yeah. It's fascinating because you think that if the goal was assimilation, that the fact that these people were already mixed that that would have been a good thing but i guess the mixing happened before canada was even a nation um it was so messed up so complicated um so, some people maybe some of our listeners maybe have heard about louis riel and mm -hmm. and th those rebellions i don't know if they know the history but it, it, were those rebellions happening because some of these 
unfair policies? Like, is that what Louis Riel was rebelling against? Yeah. And uh, one of the things that we're trying to correct as the Métis Nation right now is uh, is actually shifting the narrative around uh, rebellion and actually one to resistance. And that is, uh, if you think about the history of Métis people, the one word that, uh, you know, is a theme throughout our history and even in today is resistance. We are have always been resisting colonial and assimilative policies and processes to be able to assert our inherent right to self-determination and, and self-government, to a way of life that our people uh, should be uh, living and, and want to be living. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, uh, Louis Riel was one of those people who recognized that there was a lot of unfair policies and, and, uh, and, and processes um, where our Métis people were being left out. And so Louis Riel is, is certainly a leader within, within the Métis Nation um, for resisting these policies and trying to fight for Métis people to be a part of, of Canada. Um, because Métis people have been, uh, have been instrumental in making this country what it is today. Um, Louis Riel, for example, and his provisional government negotiated Manitoba into confederation. Mm -hmm. And... Um, while all this was happening, while all our Métis people were still trying to make sure that this was a good place to live for our Métis people to be able to continue on our livelihood as, as we wanted it to be, um, these policies and, uh, and, and processes were, were really stifling the way that our, our people were living. And so all of that led to resistance. It led to the Northwest um, resistance and, and Louis Riel really taking up arms first in Duck Bay, Saskatchewan, and then uh, ending at Batoche, Saskatchewan, um, with the with the, mm -hmm. the Battle of Batoche, which is where my family comes from. Wow, wow, lots of history. Mm -hmm. um, would the original Europeans that were mixing would they have been mostly French? There was all kinds. Um, there was okay. there was French, Irish, and Scottish settlers that were coming over and okay. um, some working for the Northwest Company, um, the trading company, right. and some working for the Hudson Bay Company. So the mixing was was with French, Scottish, right. and Irish. The reason why I'm asking is because I, I my sense and from Métis people that I know that that a lot of them would have been Catholic or Christian because of those that mixing. Is, is that uh, fair to say? <laughs> Um, Historically. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. And no. I mean, um, again, this this is really um, something that needs to be thought through a little bit more with our communities and and with with the church. I mean, the colonial legacy of forced assimilation, including mm -hmm. uh, church run residential schools, the 60s scoop legislation that bans ceremonies for over half a century has really resulted in um, a disconnection of, of many uh, Métis from spiritual ways of our ancestors. So Métis spirituality exists on a continuum, if you were to think about it with Christianity, especially like you say, Catholicism on one end and traditional Indigenous spirituality on the other. And it really blends both of those in the center. And so Métis spirituality it does also include ceremonies um, historically and contemporarily. And uh, so it, it's, it's not one or the other. It was actually quite a blend. And I think today, 
um, there's so much diversity across the Métis mm. Nation. Like I say, from British Columbia to Ontario, that's a vast amount of land. That's uh, There's a lot of differences there, and, and that applies to our spirituality as well. Yeah, I guess that I was asking because I, I truly saw that that was an opportunity for a good mix. And and maybe mix is not the right word, as you said, because it's not like it's it's a little bit of both, but I think it's the fullness of both that creates something even greater in terms of, of spirituality. Um, and I'm glad you brought up residential schools and the 60s scoop, because I was going to ask you, would those policies have affected Métis people as well? Were Métis children being sent to residential schools as well and uh, maybe being forced out of their families and to be adopted by other families, by white families? Was that happening as well? <clears throat> yes, absolutely. It was happening. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of work for us as the Métis Nation to still do. There's a major piece of work that needs to be addressed to really come to understand the full experience or the full, I guess, history of Métis experiences at residential school. There were some 600 schools across these lands that uh, that had similar policies, but only a hundred and 60 or so were those schools that were recognized by the, the residential school settlement agreement. So a lot of these schools were provincially run or run by different churches and they aren't actually recognized. And a lot of those schools were the schools that our Métis people were going to. Um, so there's a lot of work for, for the Métis nation to seek out the full story of our Métis survivors and, and the experiences that they had. Um, many of our survivors today talk about being sent to the convent or being sent to a boarding school, not necessarily what, what a lot of people now call a residential school, mm -hmm. but they were residential schools and they, they did share the same, same type of assimilative policies as those that we are very familiar with today. Yes. And I think a lot of that, I hope uh, that all everyone is trying to sort of not undo because you can't undo the past, but 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 move forward from it. And part of that involves this delegation that you're part of that is going to be traveling to Rome to meet with Pope Francis. What do you think about that? How how important do you think that that visit is or needs to be? Yeah. So for some it's very important and and it is for many of our residential school survivors to uh, to really bring the stories of the metis nation over to the vatican to the pope to create that space for our metis survivors to tell their truths mm -hmm. and and i think one of the most powerful things that i like to remind people of is of course we sit in these circles with elders and and residential school survivors and 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 they're elderly but the stories that they tell happen to children. And I think that's what's most important to me is to bring those stories over to Pope Francis and share with him that these things happen to children. These injustices happened to children. And there's, like I say, there's, there's much work ahead of us to uncover the truth of the experience of Métis residential schools, Métis residential school experiences, um, because before reconciliation can happen, we need truth. And so there's a lot of that work that has to take place. And, and we want to start to, well, this work has started across the Métis Nation, but part of this is now bringing these stories to the Pope, bringing our survivors over there to share their truths and uh, to invite, uh, invite the Pope, invite the Catholic Church um, along on our journey of reconciliation and our journey uh, of healing. 
you personally, Cassidy, Karen, might have the opportunity to tell something specifically to the Pope. I don't know if you've thought of that. You probably have. I don't know if you've prepared something, but what what do you want to tell Pope Francis, you personally? <clears throat> so me personally, yes, I will be leading our delegation of, of eight over to the Vatican at the end of uh, March. Um, for me, I, I'm going to be doing all that I can to create that space for our survivors to be sharing this, their stories. Um, and, and we're opening up that opportunity to, to more than the eight people who are traveling over to the Vatican with us. And we're, we're opening up um, processes so that survivors and, and intergenerational survivors can share their stories for us to bring over. So for me, I am going over and being the spokesperson for the Métis Nation to deliver these stories. And like I say, to, to share what is needed by the Métis Nation to move forward down a path towards healing, towards rebuilding, towards um, bringing our communities back together and, and healing from um, the, the, the tragic, uh, destructive um, things that, that took place to our communities. What? what is your hope that the Pope would respond or if, if, if anything, if, what would you like him to say? I actually hope that he doesn't have too much to say while we're over there because shortly after I received the invitation to lead our delegation over to the Vatican, we did receive confirmation that Pope Francis will be traveling to Canada um, soon within the context of, of reconciliation. And so when I say I hope that he doesn't have much to say there is because I want him to say it here on these lands where these atrocities took place to our communities and to our people. Um, one of the, the calls for action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report is for the Pope to deliver an apology to survivors and to their families on Canadian soil. And I truly hope that the stories that we bring um, will move the Pope to, to want to, you know, to recognize what, uh, what has taken place here. Because the definition of an apology is is a regretful acknowledgement of an offense or failure. And, and that's what the church had done. They failed our people. Um, and so an apology will be that acknowledgement for our communities to then be able to move along on their healing journeys and to rebuild and to, um, to, to, to continue down the path of reconciliation. So that's what I hope will happen, you know, bring, bring our survivors over there share these stories to hopefully move the Pope to to join us in this work that needs to take place for Indigenous people here in Canada. President Karen, I think that, that that's exactly what's going to happen. I, I And I'm, I'm with you. I, a lot of people are hoping for that, but I, I do think that that's what's going to happen. And I'm, I'm excited uh, about being part of that delegation because I'll be there as well. Oh, great. So, um, looking forward to that journey that should have begun a long time ago i know it has begun but it should have begun even before then and that it might be a, a long journey because healing takes time but that we can walk together thank you for speaking with us today and for sharing a little bit about you and and your people and and what you do and and your thoughts about all of this with us today great thank you so much
President Karen was one of the delegates who traveled to Rome from March 28th through April 1st to meet with Pope Francis. Not only is she an inspiration for all Métis and Indigenous Canadians, but for all young women who seek to have a voice in leadership and in making a difference that is so much needed in this world. To learn more about all Indigenous issues, especially as they intersect with the Catholic Church, you can visit our website, slmedia.org slash healing-reconciliation-journey. That is also where you can watch our coverage of the historic meetings between residential school survivors, elders, knowledge keepers, and indigenous youth with Pope Francis. I'm Deacon Pedro. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned over the next couple of weeks as we bring you more indigenous voices on this special featured series of the Salt and Light Hour.